Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show. Uh, whom are executive producer Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to my show, uh, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how you can contribute. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Ronald Chapman. And he has written uh, some really interesting books. Uh, one of them is called Progressive Recovery. It's about the 12-step program. And he has another one called Seeing True, which also sounds very interesting. And he has some other books as well that we might touch upon. Thank you for coming on today. Glad to be here, Gary. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So um, let's start out with the 12-step one. Yeah. What inspired you to write it? I mean, I, I, I've been around these programs for a long time, as we were talking a little bit before. I won't say which one, but, um, <laughs> cool. you yeah. know, it's, uh, you know, uh, like, like, like I know like some of the history behind them, too, is a little bit strange because mm-hmm. I, I know Alcoholics Anonymous anyway started out as – a Washingtonians and they became like an Oxford group and then finally became what it is. And uh, so it was sort of like an old white guy Catholic society and <laughs> a secret society it basically for old, was, for old yeah. white drunk guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was definitely that. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's so much rich history there. And of course, um, a recent, a few years ago, I think it was the Utney reader, um, listed the 12-step program, the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, as as one of the hundred modern uh, miracles of the world, or something like that, because it had such a profound effect. And uh, my story is long time in recovery, and somewhere along the way, with the support of, I mean, really some pretty good advisors who really encouraged me to search far and wide. Um, unlike what some people experience in 12-step recovery programs of people telling you just stick close to what's been tried and true. I had guys who were really encouraging and gals who were really encouraging me to search far and wide for what I needed and uh, who told me that I, I, I may find it in unusual places. And so at some point in time, I realized that um, there was room for someone to write about what progressive recovery looks like. And um, I mean, shorthand on that, Gary, is, I mean, you know, they talk about the nature of the disease being progressive. And what I was taught was that I would have to continue to progress in my recovery Mm -hmm. uh, in order to continue to make progress. And so it's a it's a relatively short book that talks about a, a, a different way of working more deeply with the 12 steps. And we've done a fair amount of therapeutic stuff that I found useful as well. And so. It just seemed like the thing to do, Gary. And, you know, it's kind of like 
every good book is every good book is because somebody goes like I think we need a different book so they write the book interesting um I I, I know in some of these 12 step programs uh, there's a lot of people who are just die hard um, literature people and yeah. they, they would take um, the idea of somebody writing a new piece of literature that is not approved by some secret committee as like a heresy yeah have you come across any of that sure um i mean fortunately i had one very long time advisor who was very solid in the literature um who understood that again we had to progress um that that the world had changed and while we can learn from the original context absolutely i'm a big fan of that uh, to think that we shouldn't progress in our knowledge, especially based on what we've learned about addiction, what we've learned about um, the genetic underpinnings of it, what we've learned about how trauma factors in, um, what we've learned about the importance of human connection, to quote Gabo or Mate, um, what we've learned about um, all the variables that come from therapeutic angles that, that can contribute substantially. Um, and of course, the founders of AA and the founders of the other programs, they were real open minded about other things. They didn't pretend for a moment like they had created the alpha and the omega and nobody should ever go look at anything else. Right. But I realized that is that is heretical to some people. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, well, again, I had these great advisors who said, Ron, in the end, in the end, your recovery, your life, your spiritual life is 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 yours. Right. Um, and, and nobody can be the arbiter of that. You have to follow the calling. And um, I mean, I'm like everybody. I have mixed feelings about doing that. I don't want to piss people off. But, um, you know, sometimes you just got to go where you got to go. Absolutely. Um, I know one of the hangups that a lot of people have when they come in is they start hearing a whole lot of stuff about God. And they're like, mm -hmm. screw this. This is a cult. I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do <laughs> yeah. with this. Yep. Yep. Well, so here's here's my favorite story about that. The thing I learned about this this God question um, it came from from talking to atheists. And of course, if you if you think very long about this, given how much people talk about you know God being the solution, and I'm not saying it is or isn't, um, but you talk to the atheists and you very quickly realize that that they don't believe in a God. And yet somehow or another, the principles that are embedded in the recovery programs work for them. And you're forced to look at that and go, well, I maybe I don't know what that means, but obviously it means something other than mm -hmm. God being the absolute answer for everyone. So I was I was in this great conversation with uh, two agnostics and an atheist. Sounds like a barroom joke, doesn't it? <laughs> and anyway, and um, what one of the guys said was what made sense to me. Um, he said, look, um, I came in here and I was convinced that I could not solve my problem. So whatever there was that was other than me was going to have to get it done. And what I concluded from that conversation was we're not so much talking about what that quote unquote higher power might be, just the clarity that I can't get the job done. Therefore... Right good orderly direction or the 12 steps or a God of your understanding or an AA group or an Al-Anon group or a CODA group, mm -hmm. anything that you genuinely can trust has more access to a solution than you do becomes a power greater than you. And apparently it works because 
Buddhists get sober, Quakers get sober, atheists get sober. Um, <laughs> okay, well, obviously, uh, not just white old uh, white old Catholic guys get sober. So it it kind of forces you to open your mind. Right. I do find that 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 people from you know certainly from Buddhist religions or people from Hindu religions or or um, Taoists sometimes do struggle though. Sure. With the overuse of the word God in some of the literature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the ones I've talked to about that have all sort of had to do their own kind of internal mental adjustment mm-hmm. for that. Um, and they just, I, I guess what I would say from the ones I've chatted with about this um, is that they've concluded that that being exposed to recovery is more important than their opinions about that. Yes. And... Again, that's kind of like giving up, giving up on thinking you can solve your problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a particular experience uh, early in my recovery. I was actually killing myself with with tobacco. Um, I was terribly addicted to cigarettes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and um, and I was 29 years old, and and uh, and my my physician said uh, said Ron, there are there are two kinds of smokers. There are ones who have um, enzymes in their body that flush that out of their system. And there are people who don't, and the people who don't die young and you're one of those. And, um, because I was waking up in the middle of the night gasping for air and I was only 29, hadn't smoked that long, but man, I was not in good shape. And what, what amazed me though, was the moment that came when I finally was just fed up. And I remember talking to an older guy and he just looked at me, said, well, are you willing to follow some directions? And on that day, Gary, I go like, yeah, just lay it on me, man. I'm like, I don't want to wake up gasping for air anymore. And he said, well, you know, the American Cancer Society, American Lung Association are a higher power. They know how to quit smoking. You don't. So just go, just go get their literature follow the direction directly. Exactly. Don't add anything. Don't take anything away because they know what they're doing. And you obviously don't. Mm-hmm. And 30, 30 days later, I was a non-smoker. It was like, it was like, so, so, you know, in that case, the American Lung Association was my higher power and, and, and it worked. And mm-hmm. so you go, okay, well, I can't argue with success. <laughs> yeah. I, I, took, I was about 30, for when I quit smoking. It was similar. Like I went to the doctor and my doctor, he didn't say that. He told me I was starting to get early signs of emph- emphysema. Yep. And that's I was, my story. And I was like, man, that sucks. You know, I, I don't want to, in my mind, I, and I know this wasn't right exactly, but in my mind, I said, I was thinking to myself, I know I got to die someday, but I don't want to die of stupidity. Yeah. So I threw my cigarettes away and, and that was it. But I will say, Quitting the cigarettes was maybe harder than yeah. quitting drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a really interesting factoid. Um, one of my, well, my part of my professional practice is uh, actually in public health at the Centers for Disease Control. And um, I saw the data on this, which is really, really profound. The reason that tobacco companies want to get young people smoking because if they can get them hooked before they're smart enough to not start, um, 57% of them, okay, so of all the 15-year-olds who get hooked, 57% will be smoking on the day they die. Almost all of them will still be smoking the same brand they started with, 
and 92% of them will wish they could find a way to quit. That's why the tobacco companies targeted young people because they got lifetime consumers who despite 92% wanting to be able to quit, over half would be unable to do so. That's, that's, a, that's a hell of an addiction and um, makes me that much more appreciative that a guy like you and a guy like me could find a way to get quit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> it's so evil on their side of it, man. <laughs> of the greed. Oh, yeah, screw it. Like, just hook, get some kids hooked on some shit that's going to kill them and, <laughs> and let yeah, it go, yeah. make a bunch of money. They, uh, they do. I mean, well, I mean, the truth of the matter is if you, if you set aside for a moment the, you know, the public health vantage point or the medical vantage point, I mean, the tobacco companies are brilliant marketers. I mean, they are really, really, really good at their marketing, um, which is unfortunate for our health. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they make a lot of money off that. Wow. Um, so, so what new concepts or, or what concepts are introduced in your book? that does, is not in like traditional recovery literature? Um, the, the main thing, my jumping off point um, is what, uh, what the founder, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous called emotional sobriety. And he wrote, he wrote about this back in 1957 at a time when he was writing, this was Bill, Bill W. Bill Wilson, and he was writing a number of really pretty heretical things when you really go back and look at these. Um, I mean, not that he wasn't a card-carrying member of, of AA, but that, but that he, was, he was really, he was going some different places. And in emotional sobriety, which he suggested was the next frontier for people in recovery, he began to talk about our, and this is almost a quote, our crippling dependencies on things outside ourself for prestige, well-being, a sense of ourself being the root of our problems. And it was at that same time that he wrote in another letter that the purpose of doing what's called the inventory work in recovery was to discover the ways we had been damaged by life so it was no longer some moral inventory we were doing, some inventory of our deeds and misdeeds, but we were really supposed to be looking for how we got damaged by life. So all of a sudden, now this is where it gets really cool, and this isn't so much in the book, well, it's in the back, one of the chapters in the back, is what we now know from, from the science, Gary, is that most of that damaging takes place in the first seven years of life. Mm-hmm. has very, well, I mean, all kinds of things come after that. So it turns out that the root causes of a lot of addiction, maybe all addiction, I mean, we don't know, um, has a lot to do with what we would call toxic stress or um, trauma in childhood. So it turns out that you can use the same step work that, everybody's familiar with in the recovery rooms, all the programs, and you can actually use the same steps to start doing a much deeper dive into um, what AA's big book calls causes and conditions, the things that set it all into motion. And for those of us who've kind of gone off the deep end with this, which is me, obviously, Um, we start finding that all kind of retroactive work back to our early childhood development can produce huge benefits. 
Um, now, Carl Jung, who turned out to have a hand in the creation of the 12-step programs, the great psychologist, would call this shadow work, that we're asked to go look for the things within us that are unhealed and unresolved. And that when those things get addressed, all of a sudden, all kinds of things start healing and we start getting better, a lot better. Um, so mine is an invitation. Mine is an invitation to use those same 12 steps, the same mindset, but to look much more deeply at the underlying causes of um, not just addiction, but what some of the literature, literature says, the, the patterns that underlie our lives. Um, Interesting. If, if these traumas occurred between the yep. time we were born and age seven, most people don't have coherent memories of that time period. So, yeah. so how do you recall those memories and put them into something coherent that makes sense? Do you use hypnosis or how do you do it? Well, there are people, um, well, there's all kinds of ways. I know you're familiar with Dolores Cannon and her yes. work. Um, you know, that whole practice is, is about uh, retrieving um, archived memories, archived experiences that we don't have normal access to. Um, hypnosis can work. Regression can work. Um, uh, breath work. Um, there's a guy named Stanislav Grof mm -hmm. who came up with a, a methodology for breath work that can produce altered states. Um, so there, there's all these, all these practices that can help begin to bring that stuff back up. Now, um, the thing that's funny about it, Gary, is it's not, a lot of it is not quote unquote memories. Um, what it is, is impressions. Right. Right. So like, so like when some weird thing happened to you when you were, I don't know, 18 months old, before you had language or words or even a cognitive self, all you may have experienced was terror. Right? It was an experience. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't words. It wasn't thoughts. It wasn't even a memory. It was a raw experience because babies, children, we in fact still are. We're just, we're just experience machines. Um, and in the case of you and I, we've got a cognitive self that's wrapped over that now. Um, you know, the, the one that can talk and think and all those things. But when we start going back, what comes up for many of us is impressions and so what we usually need professional help with is how to work with those impressions. Um, and invariably, that involves experiential work because it's non-cognitive. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, a therapist or a practitioner of some kind may regress you back, which is what Dolores Cannon's folks do with, uh, with, with, with their practices. They, they regress you back. Um, and in that regression, you're able to bring things up and then what a therapist or practitioner does um, is, is works with what comes up to see what we can find out about what it means to us. And then, of course, and I know this from some of your other shows, if, if you've got a regression uh, practitioner who's interested in doing this and good enough at doing it, um, you know, they would say that they can take you back past birth. Oh, yeah. Um, back in utero. Uh, and, of course, it makes sense. I mean, when you're eight months uh, eight months old in your, in your mom's womb. I mean, you're, you're conscious. I mean, there's stuff going on there. The fact that you haven't plopped onto planet earth doesn't mean you're not having an experience. 
And then, of course, some of those practitioners will take you all the way back past this life. They would say it's past this life. I've done some past life regression, and I certainly have opinions about it. And that you may be able to actually pull back archived stuff that even predates this lifetime, all of which apparently has an effect on us. Um, now, if you really want to go off the deep end, I'll this tell cool. you what I, I'll, I think I'll tell you what Carl, Carl Jung was telling us. Have you, Gary, have you been following the, the research on epigenetics? I haven't, no. Okay. Well, epigenetics basically says that things that happen in uh, your forebearers literally got marked on your genetic code. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if, if your heritage was, I don't know, let's pick someone who some community that got ravaged by the Mongol hordes back in Central Asia, back in the year, whatever year that was, long ago, right? The year 800 or whatever, um, that that experience got written into your genes, which would be the basis for what has been called generational trauma that, that actually um, is carried forward from, from your forebearers. So, if that's true, and I say if because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a hypothesis, right? It's like, okay, well, if that's true, if our experiences alter our genetic code, then if you take that back far enough, somewhere way, 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 way deep in Gary's gene set is a memory, trace memory, if you will, dating back to, I don't know, pick a year the year 120, 120 <laughs> years after the birth of Christ or the death of Christ, birth of Christ, whatever it is. And if you really go all in on this, since, you know, um, evolution would suggest we emerged out of creatures prior, prior to human state, that would mean that those trace markings deep, deep, deep within us go all the way back. So what Carl Jung proposed was uh, an, a collective unconscious and what I'm told, I'm no expert on this, but I've talked with some experts. Um, what I'm told is that he meant that all of humanity is embedded within us. Right. All of it. And that if we begin working more deeply, if we begin these regressive practices and so forth, we may, we may bring up some really interesting stuff that could come from God knows where. Um, and that that stuff could have meaning for us, that it could be, um, it could, it, it, it could help us better understand who we are, how we are, how we operate, etc. And the more and more I've probed more deeply, um, and if we had some of Dolores's fans here, they'd go, oh yeah, I mean, let's talk about the Akashic <laughs> records and, you know, off we'd go, right? Right. Um, that the argument would be that there's this, this storehouse of information inside us. Um, if, if, if you go very far with that, and I've done a bunch of dream work around this, you, you start finding out that the more you probe the depths of what's inside you, Gary, the more you realize there is to discover that it's, that there's these, um, what the, what the Buddhists call this, um, spacious place, right? Right. Where it's just boundless. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, it's like, my goodness, I'm walking around thinking I'm a, I'm a Ron Chapman, 
right? Thinking I'm a consultant and an author and a whatever, when in fact, I'm a walking storehouse of all of created history. And you go, wow, <laughs> wow. You mean, you mean everything is somehow or another marked as traces in my gene set, my consciousness all the way back across time. And um, I mean, it's, it's enough to blow your mind. And then, of course, you talk to the people who've done psychedelics, you know, people who've, who've mm -hmm. uh, who used those as a, a consciousness, consciousness altering exercise. And they'll tell you remarkable stories about the strange vantage points that came out of exploring that um, altered reality, which suddenly you start going, well, my goodness, all of I mean, every bit of fantasy, every bit of science fiction, every bit of everything could be embedded deep within us if we just create the opening to it. So, um, boy, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things that's not often talked about about the founder of AA is mm -hmm. his experimentation with LSD. And yep. also, from what I understand, he, he wasn't real deep into it, but but he was also toying around with uh, theosophy, also in yeah. holding seances. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's yeah. not mentioned in any of the official literature, but but <laughs> but he was doing this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was really cool about the founders? I, I had a I had a really really uh, cool older friend who was a I don't know a history geek, I guess is the best way to say it. He's especially interested in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, he started talking to people who were around um, in that time. And it turns out they were looking at all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, it turns out that a lot of the, um, some of the language in the literature of recovery was influenced by the New Thought people, the people who came out of Christian science, religious science, Unity Church, Joel Goldsmith, The Infinite Way. Um, that It turns out they were talking to all those people. They were talking to those radical Quakers. Um, they were talking to Carl Jung, who yeah, someone He's mentioned in there. <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, it's like, so, so it's like, these guys weren't just, um, contrary to popular belief, a bunch of white Catholic guys. They were like... Well, some of them were, but but they were like they were like man they were they were off the charts looking and wondering and trying to figure out and as I understand it let, let's see if this jives with your knowledge of that background Gary partly that was because they had had these profound experiences mm -hmm. and it caused them to say to themselves well like what in the world might be possible if we could learn what the heck is going on here. And they became students of all this stuff. It's right. just not talked about very much. Right, because I know his initial experience was like he saw a, a light and, and, and you know, had this really intense experience. And it lasted a while. It seems like, like it wore off on him after about four or five years. You yeah. know, and then he was kind of back to like, Oh, I'm depressed and this sucks and I'm feeling lonely and I wanna I wanna get drunk again. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But, yeah. but 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 that experience was enough to keep him seeking. Yeah, and, and I think it made other people curious as well. Yeah, and and uh, so it it's sort of funny. Um, there's a guy named um, uh, wrong name Gurchiff. 
George Gurchev, um, who was an Armenian spiritualist who ended up creating what has been called the fourth way. Mm -hmm. And um, what, uh, what, what Gurchev would talk about is how within all of the large disciplines, there were outer schools and inner schools. And what he meant by that was in the outer schools, there were people who were doing the practices. But somewhere inside that group, there were what we would call the mystics. Mm -hmm. And they were doing something altogether again differently. So he would point to things like, um, you know, there's astrology and then there's deep astrology. And it's a different, you know, deep astrologers are not <laughs> just reading their horoscope. Um, in, in Islam, uh, the, the mystical inner school is Sufi. Mm -hmm. Um, in Judaism, the inner school is Kabbalah. Right. Um, Jesus and the Essenes and that crowd were the inner school. If you study the Masons, you know, um, mm -hmm. who are really not very vibrant anymore, you know, there's that whole practice where you go from like a first degree Mason yeah. to like a 32nd degree Mason. Well, if you go read some of their literature, it turns out that somewhere along the way, if you were adept, one of the people who was very advanced in the mystical arts would pull you out of the common practice and invite you into the inner school. Mm -hmm. So it, it turns out that all these things, alchemy was an inner school, right? Um, uh, it, it, so it turns out that there's like these... I mean, called mysticism, right? Mm. There were these people who were practicing at a level, um, again, referring to Dolores Cannon and her whole body of work. I mean, they were going, they are still going to places um, mm. that, that, that many other people don't even think to go. Um, Carl Jung was clearly a mystic. Um, oh, absolutely. Amidst all the psychologists. So, um, Somewhere in the middle of all these things, there's that 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 mystical realm mm -hmm. that 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 we can gain access to. And um, Aldous Huxley, Huxley proposed that that's what was happening with um, uh, with psychedelics uh, was was it was it was just catapulting us into the mystical realm. Hmm. Interesting, you know. I don't. When I lived in New Jersey, we used to jokingly have something called Level Two. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was just it was a small a small group of us. All with all of us had like a significant amount of, of time under our belts. Yeah, and we all had sort of reached this point where you know, um, you know, going and hanging out with other people was good. You know, being an example, but um, being able to go somewhere afterwards and. and um, I don't know. Laugh at that shadow. Basically, you know, look at, you know, where we can acknowledge some of the stuff that you would never hear other people talk about or say. Right. And, and be able to, to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, that, like, like that was like a sort of a spiritual thing. And, and we also tended to have sort of a, almost like a Shakespearean view on everything, you know, like everything is just sort of like this big, crazy drama comedy thing anyway mm -hmm. you know and we're all just sort of playing our roles yeah you know um what that reminds me of is the idea of becoming observers right that that um, yeah yeah the analogy that's often used for this is um 
You know, if you go see, well, right now people aren't going to see many movies, but if you go see a movie in a big screen, you know, dark room, all that stuff, and it happens to be a really good movie for you, that literally you can lose yourself in the movie, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you suddenly have feelings and passions arise and, and it's like, it's, it's not real. It's, it's a movie. And you've lost your ability, not necessarily a bad thing. I had a longtime, uh, longtime friend who said the measure of a good movie is if you can get lost in it. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of like that, right? That, that mm -hmm. it's like, it's like what you're describing, the second level stuff. Um, it's like being able to look at yourself and go, wow, you're just playing out a comedy today, Ron. <laughs> you know, it could become a drama any moment because it's yeah. looking ugly. Um, but, but it requires a fair amount of um, what consciousness development, a fair amount of awareness. Yeah. 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 It, yeah, it takes, cool. a, it takes quite a while to, to be able to, to, to separate, it took a long time for me to be able to separate from my ego to yep. some type of truth. And it wasn't until I started practicing meditation, you know, yep. by, by then I was already sober, uh, like tw over 20 years, Yeah, you know. Um, and, and then, you know, that, that opened up a whole another aspect of where I was going that, yeah. you know, and it's still kind of mysterious to me. I can't quite explain where I'm going with any of this, you know, um, but it makes me curious. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned is, is, you know, people now experimenting with psychedelics. Do you think that people experimenting with psychedelics in recovery is a safe thing to do? Or do you think that they should choose other options such as meditation, binaural beats, um, yeah. what else is out there, isolation tanks? There's all kinds of other ways to, to achieve these ultra states of consciousness without the use of chemicals. Yeah. Um, well, it was a question because I was kind of hanging out there on the fringes of recovery. This was a question that came up for me. And um, at one point, I just decided to, it's it's my usual approach, Gary. It's like, okay, well, start reading. There are other people smarter than me who've thought about this stuff. So there was one book in particular. I mentioned Aldous Huxley a minute ago. He wrote a book called The Doors of Perception. Mm -hmm. And he was exploring in there altered states and what they might mean. And um, I would say the summary of what he suggested is that, um, or at least the summary parts I remember well, is that in order to exist on planet Earth, we have to have a limiter feature in our, in our psyche. Now, he compared that to um, you know, somewhere in your town, somewhere in my town, there's a giant um, tank of water, uh, drinking water, mm -hmm. and uh, millions of gallons under pressure. And um, between that giant tank and you is a series of limiters that slowly step it down so that when you open your faucet and your kitchen sink, you don't get instantaneously 60 million gallons of water. Right. He said, that's what our ego, our, our, our our, our healthy psyche is, is it, it all of reality would, as they say, blow your mind. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then, and then what happens is in order to survive being a embodied being on planet earth, we've got these limiter features that, that, that shut out 
a lot of the 60 million gallons of reality. So what he proposed was that um, psychedelics crack the limiter open some. So that what happens when you, and this would be true of you know, mushrooms or peyote or ayahuasca or any of those, LSD, uh, MDMA, I mean, all of those, is that what they do is they crack that valve open some. And that what happens is we get a view of far more than we can ordinarily see. And in some cases, it does blow people's minds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it alters their realities. And I mean, Ramdas is someone who was profoundly altered yeah. by use of psychedelics. So anyway, he goes through all of this. And it's a really, I mean, it's a really cool book. And Huxley was a brilliant guy. But in the end where he comes around to, and this is kind of my answer to your question, he says, um, the hu we human beings have evolved using very gentle, gradual ways to alter our awareness. Chanting, mm -hmm. gazing into fires, meditation. I mean, a more extreme exam example in uh, Native America is the sun dance, right? It's a more extreme example in, in, uh, in Plains tribes. Um, breath work. Um, there are all these things that we can do that don't produce that dramatic expansion of the limiter. They open it much more gently and softly. And he maintained that we can assimilate it better. Yeah. Um, and, and so my default conclusion has been, at least for me and maybe for others, I don't know. Although I guess I have to tell another story here in just a moment. Um, my conclusion has been that I, and perhaps many of us, are better suited to the slow, steady process, meditation right. over 20 years, right? But um, that said, I have a guy that I have been doing some recovery work with for a long time, who um, just a terrible, difficult, awful story. And uh, he and I eventually decided that he probably needed to go try ayahuasca, which for those listeners who've not heard of that, that's the South American root that um, when properly managed produces um, hallucinogenic state and is, mm -hmm. is probably one of the ones that under the, under the guidance of, a, of, a, of a, a, a good practitioner is thought to be a very, very good practice for altered states. Um, and I gotta, I gotta say um, in his case, Gary, I think it was a good decision. It, it produced a change in mm -hmm. him that um, was very profound. And it seems to have been what he needed to finally get himself long time clean, sober, et cetera. Um, so I, I mean, I talk about that advisedly because I don't, I mean, <laughs> lots of people, well, lots of people who need to recover, who are in recovery, are thrill seekers, and so I realize lots of people are going to go like, "Oh, dude, I'm going to go like, I'm going to go all in on ayahuasca. That's so cool." Mm -hmm. And um, if you're in the hands of a really good practitioner, a really good practitioner won't introduce it to you if he thinks that your motivations are off. Um, but there's lots of less than good practitioners who will be happy to charge you 600 bucks and get you high on ayahuasca <laughs> uh, or whatever, whatever fee they're charging. Um, yeah. So I'm a, I, I'm a, I've become a fan of the, I, I too have a very long now um, inward practice of meditation, which has, which has been um, extremely beneficial. And then about five years ago, 
um, I found I found myself having a lot of dreams that were pretty uh, profound. And right. so I ended up finding myself uh, someone, a psychologist who does dream work with me now because they're they're an altered state of their own kind. And I'm finding them to be incredibly powerful uh, for my continuing spiritual growth. Um, and that just happened because I had one big, massive dream. It's like, what the hell? And um, that was, I don't know, six years ago now. So, mm -hmm. so you know, I, I'm, I'm now a believer that dream work um, can be very beneficial for some of us. As, yeah. a, as an altered state. Yeah, one of my first episodes, like he's also like one of my best friends too. He's a, he wrote a book on dreams. His name is Johnson yeah. Miller. Yeah, I don't know him. Yeah, he has a book out called Dream Patterns. He's a teacher at Drexel, history teacher. Hmm. He actually edited my book. Hmm. So, yeah, it's good. And I've done talks with quite a few other dream people also. And yeah. there's a lot, lot there. I know for me, when I was one of my drugs of, of choice when I was running wild, I spent I did like a three month binge on Angel Dust. Well, that'll work. That'll alter you. <laughs> so I think that cracked my consciousness, maybe a little too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, Ram Dass was. I'm I'm told. I mean, I'm I you know I don't I'm no expert on Ram Dass, but. From what I've read and from what I've told, he attributed his experiences with LSD. He was in that Timothy Leary crowd. Mm -hmm. um, he says that a huge part of, um, of of his what ultimately became his path was influenced by those altered state experiences with with LSD. And um, he turned out to be quite an extraordinary guy. And yeah. so you kind of look at it and you go, well, I mean. I don't know what to say about that, except uh, it seemed to be highly beneficial in his case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. One thing, too, I also believe is nothing just happens by accident. You know, every, you know, everything that I've done in my life had a purpose to it, um, whether I know it or not at the time. Mm -hmm. um, another experience that I had that really changed my – and actually one of the reasons I started this podcast – was because I had an epileptic seizure. And during the seizure, I just found myself in this empty void surrounded by color and sound. And it was the ultimate peaceful experience. It was un so I can't describe. It was just absolutely incredible. And, um, and I know it wasn't my body. And I know my consciousness was still floating around somewhere in the universe doing something. And, um, and ever since then, you know, like like that's what I've been kind of exploring through this podcast in a lot of ways. Yeah. When I talk to a lot of people about consciousness and what reality is, and yeah. you know, all these things. Did you did you happen to um, at any point read or come across Jill Bolte Taylor's? I forget the name of her book. Um, my something stroke, my stroke of anyway. No, that ringing a bell. Anyway, she was mm -hmm. a. Uh, She's a, she was a brain scientist, uh, a brain physician, and she had a devastating stroke. Oh, I saw the TED Talk with her. Yeah, a devastating stroke. And what it basically did, I mean, this is, I, I'm again, I'm no expert on this stuff. I'm just a collector of many, many interesting pieces <laughs> that I can make sense of. And, but essentially what it did was it broke the connection 
between her operational self, the self that could talk and walk and do that sort of stuff, and her her conscious self. Yeah. And so what she describes in her story, and yeah, I'd forgotten she did a TED talk on it. So here you've got talk about talk about serendipity, right? Here you've got a brain scientist, a brain physician, mm-hmm. having this remarkably strange stroke, which cuts her off from her ability to do any of the operational things that those of us do during um, you know our day in day out lives, and she's left floating in the ether, fully aware that she's a being fully aware that there's something she could conceivably do, but unable to reattach herself to her functions and having a debate with herself about where, whether she even gave a damn about coming back. <laughs> but, it's, but at some point yeah. in time, I remember the story correctly. She basically thought, my God, there is so much valuable information here. Um, that, that sever me from all my, I mean, I can't take care of myself. I can't speak. I can't, I can't do any of the functional motor stuff, but I am fully aware and fully conscious. Um, and I'm floating around in here. And so she came back at least in part, which I guess was a pretty arduous journey back to be reconnected to her functioning capacities. Um, she came back to tell that story that, that, um, we are not, we are not this shell that walks and talks and mm-hmm. craps and does all the stuff that we do. We're, we're, there's something else to us that isn't that. Right. It's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a cool story. Yeah. You know, one, one of my theories of it, and again, like this is just one of my theories about addiction, especially mm-hmm. with drugs and alcohol, is I think at some point, maybe we remember not being a body or not being trapped in his body and through chemicals and use, we're trying to recapture that original self. We don't know exactly what that self was, but we know it exists and we're just trying to go back to that place. So, so I'm going to use that as a jumping off place for one of my hypotheses, at least partly informed by some things I've learned from others. But So imagine for a moment when you were like, let's say five months in utero, right? Mm -hmm. Five, probably by then you were a conscious being, right? You were not fully formed. You weren't ready for the, for the, for the, this world we live in now. But uh, one of the guys who hypothesized this said, so here you are, you're a fully conscious being hanging out, floating on amniotic fluid, so it's a buffered ride. You're wrapped in your mother's trunk, your torso. Mm-hmm. So all the sound and light and everything else is buffered. You're getting a very gentle white noise. You're hooked up to nonstop oxygen and nutrients through the placenta. And you're hanging out there kind of like meditating, right? Going, this is really cool, man. <laughs> well, so, so here's the hypothesis that would align with what you said. Isn't it interesting that lots of us imagine that the point of life is to get back to this totally non-stressed place where we're just floating on this nice little cushioned ride with everything provided and no effort required. And then even more ironic that we assume that heaven 
is that <laughs> right? right that we're going we're going to return to the state of floating on a cloud where we don't got to do nothing except enjoy the ride um so anyway here's here's what the depth psychologist might suggest about that so so long before you were a gary with a with a name and a personality and all this stuff right long before you were a guy who had whatever adventures you had you were a being who was fully conscious of being present and all it was was raw experience mm -hmm. well of course we would have a memory somewhere deep down in our being of what it is like to be one with the universe and that would that would line up with your idea that we're trying to return to that state it would line up with any number of ideas about why a lot of us have this pursuit of a non-disturbed state. Right. Because yeah. I know, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, maybe even experienced it too, um, that, that that first time that, of drinking or getting high almost recaptures that feeling of being in that blissful state. Yeah. And then yeah. after that, you just spend the rest of your time trying to get back to there. Right. And I mean, you hear that all the time with, mm -hmm. with people recovering from all kinds of substances is that what they were trying to do was to find a way to smoke just the right amount of pot or do just the right amount of mescaline or drink just the right amount of vodka or, you know, just the right amount that they could figure out a way to sustain that steady state bliss, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the problem uh, the problem is it's not it's not sustainable, um, except maybe I mean. I guess I'd make an argument based on my experience and what you were saying earlier that maybe with enough meditation practice yeah, um, and or breath work or any of those kinds of things that re-embody us, mm -hmm. maybe it's a reasonable conclusion to think that we can learn how to maintain that state through those kind of active practices on an ongoing basis. But the funny thing is, Gary, that doesn't have anything to do with changing our world. That's not buying a nicer Barca lounger. Right. See, see, I, I think that's the catch, just like the, it is with, with recovery. I think yeah. if we're going to shoot for that and reach for it and achieve it, there has to be a catch. And I think that catch is that we have to return it back to humanity, that we mm -hmm. have to... Use it to heal the world and help, help other people, you know. Yeah, it's such an interesting question because um, on the one hand, yes. And on the other hand, there are those who um, there are those who live in seclusion, mm -hmm. believe that their great contribution is to practice being present with that God of their understanding and that that's their contribution to the world. Um, so, 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 so maybe the part about what you said that holds maybe up, it is though, even though they're physically in seclusion, maybe they're, yeah, you know, collectively well, doing something. That, well, that's what a lot of the prayer warriors and, and all those folks would say is that they're, you know, by the acts of their, of their, their prayers and their fasting and all that stuff that they are materially affecting the world. And, um, I, don't know that I can disagree with that. I don't, I don't know that I can prove it, but um, it sure looks to me like the more and more inner peace I have cultivated through my practices, largely meditation now and breath work and dream work, 
it does appear that I'm affecting the world around me. I have to honestly say, but then let's be, let's be brutally honest. I could be 100% delusional, right? I should, I could be believing my own nonsense and perfectly happy about it. I might add, but it sure looks to me like that kind of inner peace to the degree that we can cultivate it. It sure looks like it affects the world around us. That's what it appears to me to be true. Right. And I, I mean, on a quantum, like if you like I've interviewed some quantum physicists, and yeah. they would say, "Yes, yes, it's affecting the world. It's affecting right. consciousness, and when, when everything of existence is nothing more than consciousness. So, as long as you're clearing that out, you are bettering the whole world." Yeah, yeah. And the um, I forget who did these original experiments in that. I'm no expert in quantum physics, but I'm not an well. Who knows what I'm an expert in? Um, but I mean that um, I forget the name of this, but that idea that whatever we observe is altered by our observation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what quantum physics. I mean, they can prove that out mathematically. And so um, given that that must be true, that means that the mere fact that we are observing reality the mere fact that we are participating in reality means that we are altering reality simply by our presence in reality. Right. Which is kind of mind boggling. Right. So, I mean, so if that means that I'm, I'm materially contributing in some small way to reality, then the better and better I get at paying attention to this present moment, presumably I would affect reality more and more. I would guess. Right. You're still contributing to the whole. Yeah. And, and I think that's the whole idea. Like, like you don't have, even those people in the caves, it's their intention. Their intention is still, even though they're, they're, they're isolating with the intention now yeah. of, of, of affecting the whole big picture. Right. Because they understand that it's all interconnected. Yeah. And if one thing changes or one person's thought changes, everything changes. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, it takes us into that whole realm of oneness. And I mean, my goodness, there have been so many interesting angles at what is it? Holotropism, mm-hmm. that, uh, holotropism, holo, 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 anyway, that if you look at anything, um, you know, everything is captured in the same form. Right. Um, um, or, of course, uh, some would say that the the underlying wisdom of Jesus's do unto others, mm-hmm. um, do unto others. So are you doing unto yourself? Because there's actually, there's actually no separation between us. There just appears to be separation. Right. Um, and I, I was doing, I was on a retreat once in the mountains in New Mexico and I was sitting next to the teacher. And um, this was a one one time experience that um, that I, I I remain very captivated by. But we were, I don't know, we'd been doing holotropic breath work and drumming and all kinds of stuff. And anyway, I was sitting there, and Gary, we, my my arm was against her arm. So like, if you can imagine, it was like my arm was against her arm, mm-hmm. and I was I was aware of being incredibly still just really deeply still on the inside. And um, there was this extended time, I don't know how long, but there was this this extended time where from a perceptual point of view, I could not sense any separation between my arm and her arm. 
I mean, it was a mini altered state. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I, I don't know what to say about things like that, um, except that, you, 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 well, here's what I know what to say about that. Let's see what you think of this, Gary. Somebody told me once that the problem with trying to teach people what you believe is that they have to refute their own experience in order to believe what you believe. And I can't talk myself out of my own experiences. Right. They are true experiences for me. Absolutely. One of, one of the things I always encourage on a, on a lot of my episodes that are similar to this, I always want, I hope I can inspire people to experiment, experiment yeah. with meditation, experiment with anything. I, I even have like binaural beats that are free on my website for people to try. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I have had really good success with those. And, um, but experiment because that's the only way you're really going to know. I, you, you can listen to all 200 of my episodes and still not believe me. And I wouldn't expect anybody to believe me. But if you go out there and try and find out what's going to work for you as an individual, yeah. that's the way to go. You know, I, I am 100% behind you on that one um, because it's been, I mean, it's been true to my experience. Um, when I did past life regression work, I did, I don't know, six or seven sessions some years ago. And um, I, you know, honestly, and if you talk to me long enough, you'll hear me say things like this often. I mean, Gary, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I mean, if, 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 if you told me, if you asked me, well, was it or was it not, not a past life? What I would have to say is I don't know. I mean, I really do. I, I can't tell you what that experience was. But I can tell you that it was a true experience. Yeah. I can tell you that it created in me a certainty. Uh, something you said earlier, what I came out of that with, because basically for those who haven't done past life regression, someone um, takes you back across the, the boundaries of this life and they reawaken you essentially in some altered place. And then they ask you to explore it. And um, uh, it's a deep regression and, and then they they bring you back out of that past life, what they would call that past life experience. And there's some heavy duty books on this stuff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm just telling you what what happened. And then they, they at least in this case, the practitioner brought, brought me into the presence of, of, of a teacher who helped me debrief on this life that I had been in each time. Same teacher, different lives. And... Um, what amazed me was something you said earlier. What amazed me was no matter how strange that life seemed, it made sense. Mm-hmm. It absolutely made sense, but I could not understand it in the context of the life that was being lived. So what that gave me is today what I would call a really deep faith I am absolutely convinced that this life of mine that I don't actually really understand, Mm -hmm. somehow or another, it makes some kind of really good sense, but I will be unable to understand that in this lifetime. And I I just... Or in this this universe, because some experts, and and I kind of go by this theory too, is that in in a multiverse type of scenario... There's a whole bunch of me's living in every possibility. So yeah, what you're what, what that would propose, and again, that's that's the realm of those those crazy quantum physicists who are 
finding out there maybe is more than one universe, the multiverse. So what that would mean is that you're, you're actually not living a past life. You're living a parallel life in mm -hmm. some other universe um, in different form. So every kind of Gary that there could be exists. <laughs> right. There's, uh, you could be one of them. <laughs> I don't know. In fact, everybody I encounter could be one of me living like, in some parallel universe. Yeah, it's uh, and I think you said something about experimenting just a little while ago. And I, I think that's it. Right. Is that what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to hang out with this stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly have some things I think I have clarity about, Gary. But the, there's a lot of stuff I just kind of like have to go, I don't really know. But but it's okay. I get it that there's 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 things that are true, even if I can't explain them. And even if um, I don't really even know what to say about them, they are true experiences. I had a um, one night, this is the only time this has happened. Um, one night, I, um, I don't know how to describe this, but I had been, I was deep in in a period of meditation practice that I'd been going through. And, and I woke up one night and I was elevated above my body, was having an out-of-body experience in the middle of the night. And um, it's the only time that particular thing has happened, but I'm like hovering over myself, looking down at myself, literally looking at my form below me sleeping. And lots of people have written about this kind of stuff. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, I remember looking at it and going, that's not me. I'm not that form. I'm whatever this thing is hanging out above that mm -hmm. form. Um, and um, I don't know how long it lasted or anything like that. But I remember when I subsequently read about people talking about out-of-body experiences, like, oh, well, that's when, you know, we get the soul. I don't know for what else to call it. Um, somehow or another detaches from the form in which it is normally packaged. Right. And, and suddenly you're looking at yourself and you go, oh, I'm me. I'm not that. That just happens to be a, that happens to be a package that I spend most of my time in. Right. There, there's, I've covered, that's when, how I got into the whole binaural thing is through yeah. um, interviewing people who've uh, been part of the Monroe Institute. And I had one guest who was also a, you know, he was a part of uh, Project Stargate, which was, which was a government remote viewing program. And, mm -hmm. and if you listen, I have copies of the original tapes, too, that were made for that program. And one of the first steps is, like, you step out of your body, and then you take your body, you, you pack it, you put it somewhere safe, and then you go out to do your remote viewing. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was the... Um, yeah, that was Bob Monroe's technique. Yeah. And I mean, I get it that some of us are apparently, I mean, as I talk with people about this stuff, um, I get it that some of us are, um, um, we're apparently so attached to our form that some of us don't separate very well. Mm -hmm. And other people seem to be able to kind of like off they go. Um, and once again, I don't know what to say about that other than to acknowledge that everybody's experience is, is different. Um, what that reminds me of, though, whether it's recovery or spiritual practice, is one of the things that has become bedrock for me 
is encouraging people, as you said, I mean, do your own experimentation. I don't pretend to know what Gary's path needs to be. Mm -hmm. I don't pretend to know. I have a whole lot of experiences, a whole lot of things I've tried. Maybe some of those have applicability to you, but it's just as likely, you know, your experiences binaural practice is something that I need to learn. Um, and they, you know, they talk a lot about how, um, how teachers, teachers stop too often. Teachers stop being able to be taught. That um, does happen. And, and that, that, um, at that point, um, that's a pretty significant spiritual psycho spiritual impediment because I mean, there, apparently there's always something more that we need to be exposed to or experience. And, um, as soon as you stop being teachable, uh, your ability to have those new experiences stops. Right. And, and like you always, you're always not afraid. One of the things I've noticed while interviewing you is you're like, you're not afraid that you don't know. Say, I don't know if, if this is the case or not. And that, that, no pun intended, is the first step <laughs> to yeah. to um, a spiritual yeah. exploration. <laughs> yeah, it's um, well. I was uh, at at one point. Who was I? I can't remember. I was talking to some teacher about this, and and I was talking about how what I was what I was aware of um, was how one of the biggest impediments is to get attached to a particular form. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like as soon as you make up your mind that the proper way for your practice is to sit on a cushion, cross leg and then meditate. Um, and that that is the only way. Um, all of a sudden, the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other ways are no longer accessible to you because you've gotten locked and loaded on this one form. Um, and so if you take that as an example, let's just hypothesize for a moment. What if stillness is the point? Stillness, being absolutely still and present. What if that's the point? Well, shoot, if I can get absolutely still doing Tai Chi, mm -hmm. even though I'm in motion, then Tai Chi is equally as good as setting cross-legged on a meditation pillow. Or here's a good one. I have an uncle who lives in Oklahoma who's almost 90 years old. And um, he goes out deer hunting almost every morning, pretty much all year round, bow season, musket season, mm -hmm. season. Um, as far as I know, he never kills a deer. <laughs> but he goes out because he wants to sit in his blind, his tree stand mm -hmm. in the morning and just be present to what's going on in that moment. So now all of a sudden deer hunting is a stillness practice. Mm -hmm. And he goes, what? It's like, but hey, I mean, I don't know what to say, except um, I was talking to him about it last time I chatted with him. I said, so what's up for you? And I don't know how much he knows about some of this stuff that I have my hands into. But anyway, I said, what's up with that? And he said, well, I don't know. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I like to go sit in the tree stand and um, sometimes deer come and um, sometimes deer don't come and sometimes birds sing and there are squirrels. And I, by about seven o'clock, I'm ready to come home and have some breakfast. <laughs> <I> go well. <laughs> I mean, 
that sounds like, and my, and my uncle is, I mean, if you met him, you would never guess that he has any kind of a, uh, what you might label a meditation practice, except that every damn morning, <laughs> he's out in his tree stand, hanging out um, with a weapon that he apparently never uses. This <laughs> is really perfect, right? Yeah. He's, uh, he's a unusual kind of deer hunter. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to me, that sounds like meditation. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things, like, like with certain Zen stuff, like, you know, they're like washing. What is washing the dishes? Mm-hmm. Like the koan type of practice. Like anything yeah. and everything can become a mindful practice. Right. Yeah. Years ago, I was actually in a in a recovery meeting. And the topic was meditation. And there were some pretty highfalutin things being said. And there was one guy there and he was just really quiet. And somebody finally called on him and he said, you know, I'm just really embarrassed. The only thing that quiets my mind is waxing my car. And uh, one of the older guys goes, then waxing your car is a good meditation practice for you. <laughs> and I remember thinking that's like perfect, man. Right. I mean, right. that's like. I was like, perfect. I mean, if you can just wax your car and be present to the moment and still inside, I mean, hell, wax your car every day. Um, why not? <laughs> you can come over and wax mine, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We can, we, can offer, we can offer to help him with his meditation. Yeah. Oh, man. But um, yeah, so I guess coming around full circle, um, perhaps the form doesn't really matter, um, although admittedly some forms work better for some of us. I used to do a a meditation workshop that um, what I had learned was that a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions. Haven't done one of these in a while, but what I would do is a half day workshop and I would take them through about a dozen forms of meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the basic the basic premise, Gary, was, listen, I don't know what will work for you, but let's try some stuff. Let's do a walking meditation. Let's do a writing meditation. Let's do a, a breathwork meditation. Mm-hmm. Let's do a chanting meditation. Let's do a stillness meditation. Um, and what invariably happened was people would come up to me afterwards and they would tell me which ones really didn't work for them. And they would tell me which ones really did seem to work for them. And so it's like, great, pick the ones that work for you and do those. That's right. perfect. Um, and every now and then someone would come up, come up and tell me how much they hated one of them. <laughs> so, so, and I, I have to admit, Gary, I had a mischief streak. Um, I, uh, I have this periodically. I would, I would do a, uh, a disturbance meditation. And what I mean by that is I would uh, I would ask everybody to go into stillness and I would make some kind of a loud noise, knowing for sure that it was annoy the hell out of them. And it's like, well, that's good practice right there Mm because you you can fully engage your disturbance and work with that. And mostly people didn't like it, but I had a lot of fun with it. You know, that's one of the reasons I've always enjoyed meditating outside, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's you know animals flying by. There's people blowing horns. There's kids yelling. Yep. You know, it, it, and I don't know. I, I actually find that works well for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I presently my present practice is mostly. Um, well, I, I have a couple practices. I um, 
I do have a, a sitting practice where I, I have a, a chair I, I like to sit in. It's actually right here behind me that seems to be a pretty good place to sit in the mornings for 15 or 20 minutes. I usually do some journaling. Um, but increasingly, since I've had um, these dream experiences, I, um, I do a fair amount of meditation around my dreams. Um, you know, I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, a dream or not a dream. And I will, I will use my breath to sort of try and sink. You know that, you know that kind of gray state mm -hmm. where you're not really awake and you're not really asleep? I love that. Well, I, I found that I can use my breath to kind of hold in that space. And um, it's, a, it's a powerful dream space, it turns out. Um, and so now rather than cursing the night when I wake up, I just kind of, I kind of like find a, find a, find, find a way I can lay in the bed and see if I can practice with my breath and find that state. And, um, sometimes it's pretty darn cool. Oh, this sounds cool. Do you, like, you ever find, like going to like traditional type of meetings and trying to talk about some of these topics. I mean, do, do, do you even do you even try it? First of all, uh, I, um, <laughs> I sort of have, uh, I have multiple experiences. One is, and I mean, for for the most practical reason of all, is that I don't ever want to find out if I can get hooked on anything again. Um, and so I have a I have a, a a fairly fairly standard practice around standard twelve step meetings, which yeah. serves me. Well, I've found some that that um, are some, uh, you know, they're I, I got this and sound terrible, but they're they they have a degree of in, enlightened awareness that works for me. Um, and then I have a more advanced group or groups that I hang out in where we're more likely to talk about some of these advanced topics. Mm -hmm. And then periodically um, I find myself in or starting up study groups um, where we'll take like my book or one of my books, um, or we'll take somebody else's book and we'll just do a concentrated study on something. Um, I mean, we did some cool stuff with, uh, um, uh, Alan Watts book, um, shoot, I'm blanking on the name of it now. Um, anyway, Alan Watts wrote a really great book. It's the book he talks about flux. Um, I did a really great book, book study like that with, um, um, what's her name? The great Buddhist teacher. Oh, I'm blanking on names now. Great Buddhist teacher. Um, I did it with the Course in Miracles. I did it with some of Gurdjieff's stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, uh, you know, I mean, I guess create what you need. I yeah. think is the. Where are you located? Which state? I'm in. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Huh. Which I never dreamed I would live in Atlanta, Georgia, but um, the universe had a plan for me here. And where are you at, Gary? I'm in Alabama. Ah, oh, whereabouts in Alabama? A Fairhope, near the Gulf Shores. Oh yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, well, yeah, we're uh, an unusual pair to be deep down south. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember one one day I was I was at a meeting. And um, I don't know what the topic was, but I I, I brought up the idea of, of of myself not existing, of non-existence, like there's no self. Mm -hmm. And uh, people just they just all sort of glazed over, like, Whoa. 
right. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? How could there not be a cell? <laughs> one, of my, uh, my, one of my spiritual advisors told me a long time ago that, that um, he, would, he would actually talk about this as the, um, the principle of consideration, which doesn't mean just being nice to people. He would say, look, give some consideration to where you are and what's going on there and, and position yourself accordingly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would say, he would say, just try not to upset people, Rob. <laughs> That's a tough one for me sometimes. And, and other times, though, he'd go, he'd go the other direction. He would say, well, shit, Ron, if, uh, if, uh, if they can be upset, you need to upset them. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, but, but coming back to the principle of consideration and perhaps no small amount of intuition, if I'm, if I'm paying attention to this present moment um, and I'm considering the setting and the people and the circumstances, um, I may very well be able to conduct myself in a way that is most effective or most useful. Mm-hmm. And it may or may not be the way I might have thought it would be. Um, you've probably had this experience, Gary, where you um, you do something and you you uh, you think about it and you go, well, that was really stupid. <laughs> I had something like that very recently happen. <laughs> and then and then sometimes someone comes up and goes, dude, that was perfect. And you go like, well, what the hell do I know? I thought I I thought I totally biffed that one. And it turns out that I hit the mark for somebody. I mean, who could know that? Mm-hmm. Um, or there have been those occasions where I was talking. I was talking in a group one day, and Gary, I I knew I was like I was I was enlightened, right? I mean, I was I was hammering it. And uh, the the next person who talked looked over and said, "Ron, there are times I don't have any idea what the hell you were talking about." <laughs> I thought so. So here I am. Here I am thinking that I've like hit the highest mark I've ever achieved, and the next guy reflects on it and goes, "Not a clue what you're talking about, man." So it's like, <laughs> I mean, obviously, um, or there's those occasions where you're sharing in some recovery meeting or some spiritual setting, and someone will someone will come up afterwards and they'll go, "Man, Gary, when you said blah 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 blah," and you say to yourself. I never said that. So they were hearing something. They were hearing something you weren't saying, but it was meaningful to them. And you go, well, bless, bless, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I also, I also do a fair amount of facilitation process, process and group facilitation. And um, I actually, I actually had this today. I had a group of about fifteen people on a on a Zoom session, and uh, we were doing some public health work and. I sent them off to do small group stuff and they came back and nobody had followed my directions. I mean, nobody. And uh, I shared with them that one of my first mentors in facilitation practice had told me that, that the first thing you have to accept as a facilitator is that oftentimes nobody will do what you tell them to do. And once you realize they're not going to do what you tell them to do, it's like, it's really fine. It's like, you know, I'm going to give them instructions. They're going to ignore them and they're going to do what they're going to do. And it's like, that's what people do. So, okay, it's fine. Um, but <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so who knows? You know, Gary, we may not even be having this conversation. We may just be thinking we're having a conversation. Yeah, I, I, I have no, no proof that this ever happened. 
is I had an incident not too long ago. I was somewhere at a meeting, and, and somewhere, and, and people were complaining about the Zoom meetings, yeah. you know, and, and, and all this stuff. And I don't know. I I I I I, I thought I was being. I don't. Know, I must have been too harsh because I got a lot of heat for it. But I was like, you know, when I first started, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> we didn't, we had to find a pay phone. Yep. We didn't know where anything was. We didn't have GPS. All I had was this piece of crumbled up paper with phone numbers and some addresses on it. Half the time I'd go to these places, there'd be nobody there. And I'd have to drive around looking for a bunch of people smoking cigarettes in front of the church. I was like, you guys are just a bunch of pussies. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 it is so funny. Because, um, uh, I was, I seem to talk about this a lot. Um, most of my most of my my world during the pandemic, most of my world, most of my practice, most of my livelihood has transitioned to this virtual world. And when you really think about it, if a pandemic had hit, I mean, as little as ten or fifteen years ago, it would have just shut. I mean, it would it would have shut everything down. Yeah. When I'm talking about a global depression, and now, I mean, for all its limitations, and there are plenty of limitations with Zoom. I mean, look at us. I mean, we're separated by what three or four hundred miles. Mm -hmm. um, this thing has been remarkably stable. Um, I've not heard any. I mean, here we are having a long, extended conversation. Be and 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 this technology is is making that possible. And you go, I mean, is that is that remarkable or what? It's certainly convenient. It's way more convenient than it used to be. That's for sure. Oh God! Well, I, I I used to hate driving around looking for churches. <laughs> well, my other example is I used to do a bunch of radio work, and I can remember recording stuff like this on reel to reel. Oh yeah. And then we would afterwards, in order to edit it, um, we would you know we would listen to the we would listen we replay it. And we'd listen for glitches. And when we heard a glitch, we would we would stop it. And then we would turn it with our finger, trying to hear the spot. And then you would pull out that little razor blade exacto knife, and you would you would cut cut the cut the reel to reel tape, snip out the piece, and then there was that little um, <laughs> little magnetic tape that you would, mm -hmm. you would put right together with again. And now all you do is click the record button, right? Right. Talk about it. Is that is that like remarkable? <laughs> I never would have guessed 15, 20 years ago that this stuff would have existed. Oh goodness. It's um I think of I, I think of what I did with my early radio work and the effort that went into that and the fact that um I mean it worked, but it was very labor intensive. And now I mean shoot the magnification of uh, the multiplication of, of um podcasts and internet radio and uh, I mean just all of it it's just it, it's just mind-boggling it is and the funny thing like down here too like like the, they never stopped meeting like like yeah, the right. meeting yeah everything just sort of just kept on going it never really stopped it was well we pretty much Atlanta pretty much shut down um, and I mean big city and the Centers for Disease Control yeah. is here so that was probably, um, and uh, some of the some of the some things have begun to open back up. And at least today, this day of the recording, I know that they 
they just um, the CDC just announced the mask mandate. Yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? It's like wow, that's amazing. Um, so again, I mean, I know there's God, there's like so much people feel like they need to complain about, but I mean, think about it: a pandemic that so far has killed I don't know how many millions. That in what 15 months, 15, 18 months, I guess it came to the US 17 months ago. Um, uh, uh, a vaccine has been produced. We've got like 46% of America uh, with at least one vaccine mm-hmm. dose. Uh, and, and my guess is, I haven't talked to any of them. I actually know some of the people who, who are working on this COVID stuff behind the scenes. And um, I haven't talked to any of them about this, but I'm guessing that they figure that that the number of vaccinated people is enough now that their concerns about things getting completely out of control um, must now be mitigated. So they've decided to not worry about the mask thing. And um, I mean, that still means half mm-hmm. of America is not vaccinated and um, many of them are going to go maskless anyway. Well, they've been going, they've been going maskless all along, but. Plus you have, the vaccinated people, and you also have people who have already had it, so right. they, they're already built up some immune. Like I'm pretty sure, I had it in December of 2019. Oh, you were one of the early exposures. Very early, yeah. and, and I mean it was bad. Like I had a temperature of like 105, which I'd never even get a temperature of 100. You yeah, know? yeah, but, that's on the, that's on the borderline of brain damage stuff too. Yeah, yeah, my, my wife rushed me off to the doctor for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah well, my, my younger daughter, um, turns out she was exposed. She lives in L.A. and turns out she got it back in December, December or January, about the same time you did. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, relatively speaking, every time someone complains about all the difficulties of the pandemic, it's kind of like, dude, I mean, compared to what it could have been. I mean, we're living large. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Plus, like for older people like us, you know, we've already lived through I don't know, 9-11, the yep. Great Recession, a couple other recessions, all kinds of fun things, wars, yeah. whatever. <laughs> well, and, and, uh, what's that Chinese adage? May you live in interesting times. Um, yep. And we're, we're certainly having that experience. Um It'll be it'll be very interesting to see how we assimilate this, and um, you know some of the some of the virologists, the people who study this stuff, say that this is practice for what will become increasingly common. Um, mm-hmm. The um, the concern with you know what's happening with melting permafrost and everything is that that um, uh, germs of various kinds that haven't seen the light of the light of day in hundreds of thousands of years will reemerge. And we will have no natural immunity. So this is a, they they would say this is a practice round. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what's under all that ice? Well, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. We just don't we just don't have any idea. And some uh, some viruses have uh, apparently proven to be remarkably resilient, even while while they're in the deep freeze for two hundred thousand years. Mm. That's like we've like like the um, that movie, the Andromeda Strain. You know, where yes. it comes from, something falls from space and has a virus on it. Yep, yep. Um, there's that. And, of course, we'll never probably really know where this virus came from. But um, 
you know, I was talking to, I was actually talking to my other daughter about this and she gave me a little bit of education that, um, you know, chicken pox was originally because we cohabitated with chickens and we had something cross the barrier. And the assumption is that people living in the presence of cows and pigs and everything else, that this is like, this is what happens is stuff crosses the barriers. And Mm -hmm. the next thing, you know, we have a new, a new outbreak. And, um, I I guess, (laughs) no, we're just going to have to figure it out, Mary. Yeah. I guess this one was just, uh, the bad shit crazy virus. Contagion. <laughs> well, that's the one with um, Brad Pitt and no uh, Matt Damon and. Um, yeah, yeah, I know that one. So anyway, you know, on the back end of that movie, um, spoiler alert: on the back end of that movie, when they show the sequence of events from bat to pig to kitchen to cook to patron, to global pandemic, you look at that and you go, my God, it is so surprising that we don't end up with more of this stuff. Uh, and of course, the the people who study this stuff would say that's because a lot of the stuff that jumps from, um, uh, jumps from animals or from nature to humans is uh, ultimately either benign um, or it just doesn't have any, any significant implications for us. And mm-hmm. so... Um, I just like, you know, the, the concern about the COVID, uh, the coronavirus is that it'll morph and produce some much more danger, dangerous virulence. But, um, I'm just gonna, I don't know about, so are you going to like try and here's the question. Are you going to go back to normal now that there's no masks required, or are you going to continue to be, you going to continue to practice safe distances and so forth? I've, I've been back to, I've never stopped. I mean, my life has never changed. I've worked in a, in a retail environment. The only thing that, that that changed for me was having to wear the mask. Yeah. And, and other like at work requires it, so I have to. But everywhere else, I, I've stopped wearing masks months ago. Mm. Because plus, I, I live in an area where it's sort of rural, yeah. and, and it's just not a lot of it here. Or yeah. I think most of the people have already had it. They've all had it. So. Huh. Yeah, because it's one of the interesting questions um, is what will, um, what will, and I know there's a fair number of people who were going to go back to whenever somebody said they could, but I mean, like you talk about retail, I mean, stores and so forth, some of them are going to have to decide, I mean, do they, do they want to risk exposure um, to their employees and so forth? And so I guess it's going to be a, I guess it's going to be a patchwork quilt. Yeah, yeah. Like for me, my job changed because I originally worked in a department that gives out the free samples. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And we had to stop doing it because of the mask and people couldn't take off the mask to try the samples and and all of that. But hopefully in June, we're going back. Yeah. So. Well, I guess <laughs> I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. Plus, most, like, like, two, um, I mean, the people who catch it at this point are people who are be, who don't want to be vaccinated. Right. So they're they're taking on their own risk. Right. So if they get sick, it's their at their own choice. Well, yeah, unless of course they pass it on to others who didn't have it by choice. So that's yeah. 
This is that classic, okay, let's, 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 this is that classic American debate, right? About, you know, you can't impinge on my, on, on my free will. Um, and on the flip side of that, your free will doesn't mean I have to accept your risk. And we've had this debate over countless things in the past, not just vaccinations. It's a classic American debate, yeah. right? Um, you can't make me wear seatbelts. Well, but what about your kids? They're my kids. Damn it. I can have my kid. I can kill my kids if I want to. It's like, well, no, actually, we're going to force you to use you know, car seats and seatbelts and all of that stuff. Um, and so, uh, it, I mean, it's just a classic. Uh, one of my favorite ones, though, related to what we talked about earlier, was the at one point in time, it was just an accepted reality that people drank, drove and hurt people. Yeah. And then Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, um, however many years ago now, 20, 25 years ago, basically changed the model for that. And they said, no, no, that's a crime. It's not just a foregone conclusion mm -hmm. that drink, drive and hurt people. That's a criminal offense and you go to prison for it. And suddenly we've got like designated drivers and Uber options and all that because we no longer accept that drinking, driving and killing people is an inevitable consequence of there being alcohol in the culture. That's a big change. It is. That's actually one that I've always, and people disagree with me a lot on this because I used to drink and drive quite often. Yeah, me too. And, uh, and I never killed anybody. Yep. I, I don't even know if I've even gotten any accidents, actually. I don't Never got DWI, anything. And if I had gotten pulled over and gotten a DWI, there's no victim. So I always sort of have an issue with there being crimes, something being yeah. deemed a crime, without yeah. a victim. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's like you've committed a crime because there could potentially be a victim. Well, isn't that, but isn't that, that's kind of like the whole basis for um, social norms and, and social agreements, because there is no doubt with impaired driving, whether it's alcohol or drugs or, you know, cell phone usage or whatever. I mean, the, the data is pretty clear that you're much more likely to harm someone. Yeah. Um, and of course, okay, so you drank and drove and never hurt anybody, and I drank and drove and never hurt anybody, but we know people who drank and drove who killed people. Yeah, I do. I know and, somebody who did it like multiple times, actually. And if, 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 if you're someone who, um, uh, who is potentially affected by that, I mean, you have every right to expect people to not drink and drive and kill you. Mm -hmm. that, is a perfectly, that is a perfectly reasonable expectation. Um, but it's a classic American argument because of what you and I are talking. It's like, well, I never killed anyone, so why should I be punished? Mm -hmm. um, but the risk is much greater, of course, which is why it's now it's 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 illegal. Yeah, just like like in New Jersey, it's a five hundred dollar fine if you yeah. get caught driving and texting. Yeah, down here, it's legal. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I was traveling in Texas a few years ago. This was actually pretty funny. I was out in rural Texas, out uh, west, of, west of Fort Worth. And I was driving and, uh, and talking on my cell phone. And, um, and I got pulled over. And, and the cop, um, you know, Texas cop, right? The whole Texas thing. He, uh, he, of course, does what all cops do when they pull you over. Do you, do you know why I pulled you over? And I just laughed. And I go, I don't have a clue. I really, I really don't know. And he said, well, 
you were talking on your phone while you were driving in a school zone while the flashing lights were on. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> it's illegal in Texas to drive in a school zone when the lights are flashing and be talking on your cell phone. And it cost me, I don't know, $287 or whatever. Non-negotiable. You can't even discuss it. You can't appeal it. You're done. You're toast. Write them a check. And um, I remember thinking, this is, I remember thinking, it's like, okay, so here we are. We're in the state of Texas where you can walk into a Chili's restaurant carrying an Uzi, which is not illegal, but it's illegal for me to drive in a school zone when the lights are flashing, talking on a cell phone. I remember thinking, I mean, this is the craziest thing in the world. So anyway, <laughs> I, I thought about asking, I, I thought about asking the, the highway patrolman about this. And I thought, well, this is, this is rural Texas. I could end up never being seen again. <laughs> so I could, end up, I could end up incarcerated for the rest of my life. So I think, I think I'll just smile, nod, accept the ticket and plan on paying the fine. Cause it's just like, I'm not going to go there. But anyway. <laughs> I just I just thought it was funny. It's not illegal to talk on a cell phone. Yeah. It's illegal to talk on a cell phone when driving in a school zone. But if the lights are flashing, it's now illegal. I remember thinking that's just way too hard for me to keep track of. <laughs> you you got to know your penal code. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, man. I'm, like, I'm down with that. All right. I'm just gonna, I'm just going to pay the man. Uh, <laughs> It's hysterical. Yeah, it was a it was an experience, Gary. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Yeah, um, well, the easiest thing to do is to go to my. Uh, I have several sites, but the easiest way to to get to it all is to go to ronaldchapman.com. Um, I've actually got five books and three or four audio sets. And uh, that site also links you to um, my other sites, one called seeingtrue.com, the progressive recovery mm -hmm. site, and, and also a couple of professional sites that I practice under because I, um, I have this whole other, I've mentioned the CDC and public, public health and part right. of what my way is the, the work I do in public health with all kinds of public health prevention practices. So. Uh, ronaldchapman.com and um, who knows what you might find there it could be some giant pandora's box that you open and never come out from again Ooh, you might even find a link to this podcast <laughs> you absolutely could <laughs> yeah uh, this is a pleasure talking to you you're welcome cool. back to come back on anytime i would love to i uh, i thought it was a lot of fun i had no idea well i mean that's kind of the whole point right we don't have any idea what we're going to talk about. You open your mouth and off we go. And an hour and 45 minutes later, who knows what we've said, but somebody's going to go like, wow, that was interesting. It always happens. It works. It's the best <laughs> format ever. No format. <laughs> well, Gary, I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back sometime. And I will, as uh, soon as this thing gets posted, I'll put it out into my universe and let people listen to you and I ramble. You got it. Uh, it'll probably be out in about two weeks. Uh, okay. I will email you the links in the morning. And also, cool. I will post the uh, links to your website in the notes of this episode so my listeners can click on them and check them out while they're listening. Excellent. That's very cool, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you. And hang on one second. I just have to play the outro. Got it. Hey. 
Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.